Well, good afternoon. First question is, does anybody know what a Liberty Pup was? Which I figure this is my probably my one connection to World War One in my talk today is what was a Liberty Pup? Think of the most German dog you know. No, not a shepherd. Not a boxer. Dachshund. The dachshunds were equated with Germany during World War One, and if, during those years. It was tough being a dachshund in the United States, <laughs> as you can imagine. So we do have an elderly dachshund who's a blind and the most stubborn dog I've ever known. And so I figure she's a good representative of the German people. So, so I have to talk. I have to talk louder. So, so I'll do that. I uh, also just wanted to say, Rich and I are, are good friends. We've been colleagues for a long time, and it's good. This is a good example of how Grizz fans and Bobcat fans can get along, despite their, despite their differences. Well, today I'm going to talk mostly about something that doesn't really deal directly with World War I, but is certainly a part of that decade that does include World War I, and that's the construction of, of roads in Montana. And I know it's a subject that a lot of you have heard me talk about before, perhaps, but it's a little bit different in the 1910s than it would be in the 1920s and the 1930s. This is really the dawn of the automobile age. And so it's kind of a decade of testing the waters to see how to get things done and how to, how to build roads and, and what have you. This is a segment of a county, or convict-built road down through Yankee Jim Canyon in uh, Park County that you can actually, that you can walk today if you want. I wouldn't recommend driving it, but um, but it's on the west side of the Yellowstone as you go through Yellow Yankee Jim Canyon down to Gardner. During the 1910s, you saw the emergence of the trail associations in Montana, and that generally was roads that had names. And these aren't federally funded and built highways. These are mostly roads that were designed to get tourists through Montana to specific tourist destinations. And you've probably heard of a few of these over the years, and it's something I get questions about all the time at the MDT, is um, tell me about the trail associations. And um, these associations were really the first interstate highways in, Mon in, in the Pacific Northwest and in Montana. And um, they did provide the basis for the uh, establishment of the first true um, highway, federally funded highway system in the 1920s. Uh, one of these is the one that you've probably all heard about, or the one that most people have heard about, and that's the Yellowstone Trail. I assume you've all heard about it. The okay, Yellowstone Trail today approximates uh, is approximately I-94 from Fallon to uh, Billings, and then I-90 all the way to the Idaho border. Uh, later it would be known as U.S. Highway 10, and there was a branch road from Livingston down to Yellowstone National Park, and that's how the, uh, how the highway got its name. The Yellowstone Trail Association was formed in, in 1912 in uh, South Dakota by a group of South Dakota businessmen who were looking for ways to start kind of capitalizing on the growing popularity of the automobile and also on this brand new industry of, of automobile tourism. 1914, the, uh, the Yellowstone Trail Association met in uh, Hunter's Hot Springs down outside of Big Timber and they um, decided to extend the highway 
to the west coast. Initially, it just went from Minneapolis to, uh, to Yellowstone National Park, but then it was um, extended on to the west coast in 1914 and also extended on to uh, the east coast about the same time. So the, uh, the, the motto of the Yellowstone Trail Association was a good road from Plymouth Rock to, Pug uh, to Puget Sound. Now the Yellowstone Trail Association did exercise quite a bit of political influence here in Montana, that this was the main east-west route through the state for, uh, for cars at that time. And it's basically because the Northern Pacific Railway was on the same, the same pretty much the same route. So um, they did have quite a bit of influence here, and, um, and I think that's pretty important as to what would happen starting about 1913 along the route in, uh, in eastern, or most, mostly in central Montana. All right, now some of the other trail associations were the Theodore Roosevelt International Highway, Custer Battlefield Highway, I'm sure, Jim, you've heard of that one. Um, the Vigilante Trail, which is one I'm, I'm working on now at my, at my job in, uh, in, at uh, the MDT. It's, it connected West Yellowstone with, with Butte via uh, Virginia City and Nevada City and, and uh, Silver Star. So there was a lot of these associations active in Montana, specific, right about the time World War I started. They really grew in influence after the war, but they're all busy jockeying to get federal funds when that's finally going to be available to them in the 1920s. Well, the question is, how do you improve the Yellowstone Trail? I mean, it's not really a federal highway, and it's not really, a, and it's not a state highway. What it is, essentially, is a series of interconnected county-maintained roads. So if you want to get anything done on the Yellowstone Trail, you have to coerce the counties to do that. But a lot of the times, the counties don't have the resources or the funds to do it. And so they're looking at alternative methods to, um, to do the work. And they're going to be assisted beginning in 1913 by the State Highway Commission, which is uh, created by the legislature that year. But the Highway Commission is just there to provide advice to the counties on how to build a modern road. And I know I've said this before, they wrote great pamphlets. The one that's the best cure for, um, for insomnia is called the drainage of roads. <laughs> so if you ever get a copy of it, if you're having a hard time sleeping, I guarantee you one page in, you'll be fast asleep. <laughs> but that was important stuff, because really at that time, they didn't know how to build a good road for, for automobiles. It's a little different building a road for a car than it is for a wagon. So the so solution they came up with was convict-built roads. And so the convict crews that built a lot of Montana's first highways, improved a lot of Montana's first highways, were busy mostly along the Yellowstone Trail in south central and western Montana. So and that's where in that's the story I'm going to be talking about today. So and they were uh, confined mostly to about a 200 mile radius of, of Deer Lodge. There's two reasons for that. If you get too far away from the prison, there's going to be more of an inclination to maybe just keep going. And the other part of it is that um, transportation costs to and from the prison were a little bit too high if you got outside the 200 mile radius. All right. So prison built roads was not really a new idea in Montana in 1913. That Powell County had been using convict crews since 1910. The uh, warden of the prison was a man named Frank Conley. I think I should probably have a picture of him. He's the guy on the right, kind of 
looks like some, like, well, I won't go into that. <laughs> Somebody I don't think I'd want to go have a beer with. And uh, it was really his idea, because of overcrowding in the prison even then, that uh, this way you can take, you get men out of the prison, working on projects that would, he hoped, provide some semblance of, of, of rehabilitation. And he said, quote, the direct effect of outdoor life, regular habits, and employment on prisoners cannot be too highly estimated. There in the freedom of the mountains, the petty criminal develops brain and brawn. He does not come under the masterful, watchful eyes of a guard or shrink under the lash of an overseer. He appreciates kindly and humane treatment. He works willingly and with the necessary punch and vim that accompanies beneficial results every day. From the brow of the burglar and the bank robber drops the sweat of honest toil. They get time to reflect upon, their fut upon the futility of their past lives. Their muscles are developed by steady labor, regular meals, and well-cooked nourishing food in abundance. The horse thief and the cow rustler wield the pick, the axe, and the shovel as if they were the manner born. So this was Conley's basic philosophy. You take a man out of the prison in those kind of conditions and you put him to work that that's the kind of rehabilitation that most of these men really are going to need to, uh, to not come back to the prison after their terms are up. So 1910, they start using them in bridge projects, road projects right around Deer Lodge. 1912, the State Board of Prison Commissioners comes up with the idea that... Um, why, not, why don't we expand that? Why don't we make it so the counties have access to those convict crews and we can do that by having them sign a contract? And so that's all the idea of the gentleman on the left, that's Governor Edwin Norris. It was really his brainchild to expand that program beyond the confines of uh, Powell County. All right. Now, under the system, counties would apply to the prison commissioners to use convict crews. And um, they would sign a contract if everything was all right with them, with, the, with it. And under those contracts, the counties were required to provide the blasting powder, the picks, shovels, scrapers, wagons, and harness for the horses. They were also required to pay the costs of transporting the convicts to and from the construction site um, over and above the amount of 50 cents each, 50 cents per day per man. So they're gonna, it's likely going to cost you more than 50 cents. What it doesn't say is who provides the horses for the, uh, the work. And the man who provided the horses for the projects was the man on the right, Frank Conley. They were his horses, so guess what? Frank Conley got built or got paid for doing these projects as well through his, uh, through his livestock. And eventually that's going to come to, to really bite him because in 1921 he's brought up on charges to, uh, to, uh, to the governor at that time for uh, malfeasance. And it turns out Conley, who had an annual salary of $5,000 a, a year, was pulling in about $50,000 a year. And a lot of that money was coming from his, uh, I want to say, skimming the, uh, the, high, the convict road projects. Although he was acquitted, and I think a lot of that was because he had good contacts with the, uh, with the Anaconda Company. 
Here's just a photo of the interior of the prison in 1913. Um, this is the old cell house. There's just a concrete pad there. It was overcrowded by 1913. It had no indoor plumbing. It was a very dark and foreboding place. And so if you're somebody that's incarcerated in the prison, I think you're going to be among the first to really try and get out because working on roads has got to be better than living in something like that, correct? Um, prison labor was used to build the walls around the prison now that you see. This is a photo of them under construction. And it's in 1912, or 1913, excuse me, that the first um, real test of the convict road crew, or convict road system really uh, is, uh, begins, and that's to build the road along the east side of uh, Flathead Lake, the East Shore Road. How many of you are familiar with that road today? If you go there, I think we've got an historical marker up there talking about it, but uh, it's because of the, the work of these men that that road was first constructed. Well, this is where, you know, first projects are the ones where you work out the bugs in the system. And it turns out that on convict projects that not only the counties have to pay for the basic equipment and maintenance of the men, but they also have to pay for the uh, hiring the guards to watch them. And it was that amount of money that really kicked it over the budget that they'd set for it. And so for another year or so, there was quite a bit of argument between the prison commissioners and the Flathead County commissioners about who should be paying the, the, the wages of the, uh, of the prison guards. And they finally enlisted the aid of uh, Fred Whiteside, who some of you may know the name of, who uh, broke the, the uh, bribery scandal with William A. Clark earlier in the century. And um, so he took a, an active role in this and got an appropriation from the legislature to help pay for the project that elapsed. And then he kind of benefited from the fact that the Highway Commission began to take over some of those responsibilities shortly afterwards. So this is just a photograph of them along the East Shore Road. Another photograph, they were used um, mostly on, on the what would become the Yellowstone Trail. This is between uh, Bearmouth and, um, and Beaver Tail Hill on the south side of the uh, Clark Fork. Uh, there's a county road there now, and I didn't realize it because a lot of it's overgrown today that um, that segment of road and that cliff is still there. So, um, of course, I got back to Helena and I've been thinking about it the whole way back, and then I thought I should have taken a picture of that. <laughs> but I didn't get a chance to go back. But uh, what they discovered early on in the system as well was that prison labor was only good where you had to move a lot of uh, rock. There was a lot of excavation, that type of work. That's where they became cost effective and those are the kind of projects they worked on. And those are the areas where we can still see some of their handiwork. Um, they weren't used for the most part in eastern Montana because the counties could handle the construction of the roads and those, that part of the state. This was, this was all pick and shovel work, blasting dynamite. They didn't get pneumatic drills until later. And uh, it's hard work. These guys worked hard for their, to, for their meager pay. I'm not sure how much they got a day. But there was other benefits to it as well. They worked hard and they were tired in the evenings, right? So who's going to want to escape? Well, they still tried to. Most of them were caught. And what do you think happened to them when they got caught? They sent them back to that cell block that I showed you a photo of. There was no argument. There was no appeal. If you escaped and got caught, you went back to Deer Lodge. So that's a pretty good incentive for most of these construction crews to, uh, to not escape. 
And indeed, you know, up to 600 men worked on, on these projects and maybe two or three would make an escape attempt. So, I mean, it's really a pretty small percentage of the, uh, of the uh, number of men who are working on them that, that tried to get away. It's another view of that same project. So you can see it's hard, you know, they had to work hard. And, um, but the results were good. They built, in the process, Montana's first modern automobile highway system. Uh, at the time they were active, there were no professional road builders in Montana other than these guys. So another view, this is in, uh, I'm not sure where this is at. It's got kind of a nice little retaining wall down there. So I haven't found this spot yet, but I'm still looking. Uh, this is one over in Park County. No, I take that, this is somewhere else. I'm not sure where this is at either. But um, for the most part, what, what they built was the road between um, Garrison and Avon uh, along the east side of Flathead Lake, along uh, what would become the Yellowstone Trail in Granite County. Um, they built the road over Priest Pass in and outside of Helena. Um, the road to the fairgrounds from what was now U.S. Highway 12 down uh, north to the fairgrounds in Helena. Um, Yankee Jim Canyon, Convict Grade in, in Park County. So they were, in, there were some projects in Sanders County as well. So they were, they were pretty active. Now there was crews of about six, 200 to 600 men. Uh, they were divided into three groups. Uh, each group was overseen by three prison guards. None of the guards were, were armed. Uh, they did have dogs though, but they didn't carry firearms. Uh, none of the prisoners were chained, they weren't chain gangs. They wore gray uniforms so they wouldn't be, you know, overtly distinguishable to people in the area. And, um, and so, I mean, every attempt was really made, I think, by Conley and, and Norris to kind of blend them in to, uh, to what's good, not to make them stick out like a sore thumb so much. And I think in that respect too, it's given them a measure of self-respect as well. There's uh, another view on, um, I believe this is on uh, Priest Pass. So they were uh, stayed in two camps, usually two or three camps. They're tent camps. There's a mess tent and uh, they get musical instruments for each camp. Uh, they get three good meals a day. Uh, comparable, they said, to a boarding room or boarding house food or ro railroad road camp food. Uh, they have to take a shower every two days. Hygiene is very important, and I can imagine if you're working like this, these guys must have stunk after a, after a good day of work. Um, they got to enjoy band concerts in the evening. They got the most up-to-date literature available, newspapers, magazines, books, that type of thing. And they also got up-to-date sheet music. So um, they were treated pretty well in the road camps, actually. And so to me, it's always been kind of a surprise that any of them really tried to get away. Just another, another, I don't know how well you can see some of these, but um, anyway, um, 1913, the State Highway Commission and the, and the uh, prison, prison commissioners uh, developed an agreement whereby the Highway Commission would take over the, uh, the management of the convict crews. Before this, Frank Conley made the decision where these crews would go, but with the Highway Commission, they made the decision instead. So they provided the wagons, the scrapers, the, uh, the picks and shovels, the blasting powder, and that type of thing. They also paid for the guards. The only thing that the counties were responsible for was paying for the upkeep of the, uh, the prisoners themselves. 
So that's really when the Highway Commission gets involved that it really takes off as an important program in Montana. Uh, the Highway Commission developed the plans for the roads. They usually had an engineer there to make sure that those plans were followed. Um, and so you see in the Highway Commission meeting minutes in the 1910s up till 1925, there's quite a bit of information in that in those uh, minute books about uh, what's going on with the, uh, with the convict crews. They didn't have any money really to, uh, to build roads on their own, so they relied on the prison crews almost exclusively to build what they called demonstration projects for the counties. 1917, the uh, Highway Commission was, was uh, reorganized and it was expanded to uh, include 12 men on the Highway Commission itself. I don't know how many of you have been on committees where you know, somebody, you got to make a decision. So I don't know if you could, you know, 12 men making a decision. Do you think that's going to work very well? No. no. So what they did was, I thought 12 men in commission, um, they had three men elected to an executive committee, and they're the ones that actually made the decisions. And the chairman of that committee got the salary each year. I think it was around $2,500. And you'll never guess who the first chair or the second chairman of the Highway Commission was. The prison warden, Frank Conley. So Frank Conley was making out like a bandit during this time. And the fact that he got away with it is, uh, is, is pretty amazing too. Just another view of it. Um, mostly I just wanted to uh, draw attention to the fact that these guys were, were active in Montana, that, um, that it, a lot of the roads that we, um, that we know today are really... Re we owe it to them for to recognize the, the contribution that they made to the um, to the uh, to the, the development of transportation here in Montana. Now there aren't a whole lot of physical traces of their work left. Uh, a lot of it was um, changed when modern highways were built. Uh, most of what we see that's still there is on county roads that were bypassed later on by other ra uh, road alignments or the interstate. So I'm still in the process of identifying where all those places are, but uh, there are still a few that are that are fairly accessible, and one in particular is just another view of the uh, wagon they used to carry gravel. These were all graveled roads for the most part in western Montana. They had ditches on either side. They were crowned for, uh, they must have read the, uh, the drainage pamphlet. <laughs> so that would be enough to make you make, maybe make you want to escape if you have to read that. But uh, they're all modern roads in the sense of that they were supposed to be used by automobiles and not so much by wagons like, like this one. Another view of uh, this one's in western Montana somewhere. This is the tent camp, one of the tent camps. So they lived pretty well. Uh, most of the time they didn't work through the winter. Now that's kind of a traditional thing in Montana that after the first snowstorm, everything kind of shuts down and, and that. But it seems like these guys stayed there year round. And again, that would relieve some of that crowding at the overcrowding at the prison to keep them on site over the year, over the, uh, the winter season. Um, let's see. Very orderly. Um, you know that the Conley is pretty good at keeping notes on things and writing about it in the annual prison reports, but you never really hear if there were disturbances in the camps or disturbances on the actual groups. Yes. Oh, five minutes. Good. Thank you. I thought you were just waving. <laughs>
All right. So I'll go quick because I've only got five minutes left. Um, this is one of the first projects they worked on. This is the, uh, the Conley Street Bridge in Deer Lodge. It's one of the first of the major concrete bridges built in Montana. It's uh, still there. It's not the southern end of the, uh, the prison ground. The old prison ground's on Main Street. It uh, was built by the prison to provide them access to the Milwaukee Road Railroad Yards across the river. And uh, they were one of the early experimenters with concrete. So they are fairly progressive in the use of construction materials. There were two cement workers that were incarcerated at the prison at the time. Not sure if they actually worked on this project, but I, I assume that they probably did. But it's really a nice bridge, and it's got some nice detailing on it. And um, anybody from Deer Lodge here? Just one? I wouldn't recommend using it a lot <laughs> anymore. Um, old bridges like this had timber untreated timber pilings. And this one, the, the pilings are exposed and they're rotted. So uh, this bridge is in, is in dire trouble. And, um, but again, it's important because of, of its association with the, uh, with the prison. And also because this bridge is on the Yellowstone Trail. Believe it or not, one single lane bridge. And the way you can tell is by this building right here. This is a little warehouse building that sits uh, just on the west side of the river from the bridge. It was built around 1900 by Conley and his business partner, a man named McTeague. And uh, it was a warehouse for uh, prison goods. And what's cool is what's on the corners of the bridge. These are the, the, uh, the standard chrome yellow um, Yellowstone Trail markers that you saw all along the trail that pointed you in the direction that you were supposed to go. So at this one, you cross the bridge to the west, then you follow the arrows that point you to the south towards, uh, towards Anaconda. So there are very, very few of these things left in Montana. So this is really a treasure that uh, I hope the, uh, the people in, in Deer Lodge in Powell County could really work hard to, uh, to preserve because there just isn't this kind of thing around anymore in its natural state. This is what the, the symbol looked like. Another group, another road that you do, you can drive that they built is called Convict Grade. Anybody in Park County from here? A few of you. Park County is on the north side of the Yellowstone River. Um, you go turn at the Mission Interchange and turn uh, right on Convict Grade, and this is a couple miles down the road. But this is uh, shows con or, uh, sandstone cliffs that were all scaled by the uh, scaled off by the uh, the prisoners in 1917. 1913, excuse me, to build this, or something, it was 1917, I believe, to build this road. And it became an important part of the Yellowstone Trail, appears frequently in their literature of the time, the convict grade. And of course, there was this photograph of uh, the, the two automobiles on the grade as well. And you'll notice that it's single lane. And I've been on this particular segment quite a bit because we listed it in the National Register of Historic Places. And believe me, you don't want to go over very far because you'll be right down in the drink. And this is what it looks like today. So this is, again, a place where you can go and see what they did. And so I think that's really an important part of the legacy of, these particular, um, of, these, of this particular method of building roads. So um, with that, another photo of it. Um, also kind of snaky, so you don't really want to go out in the rocks too much. To me, that's always right, Milo. That's a good thing to, to keep. I think I saw Milo here about. Keeps me out of a lot of places. 
But convict roads are nearly forgotten, but a very important part of Montana history. And it's one that a lot of people don't think about, is where did this road come from? You know, what, what was it behind this that got it constructed in the first place? In this case, it was to reform convict labors. Now, the recidivism rate for the convict crews, though, was about 19%. So a lot of men did end up back here, but if they worked well, worked hard, didn't cause any trouble, they got their sentences shortened, and Warden Conley would write them a letter of recommendation when they, uh, when they finally did get out. And then finally, I think I tell this every time, you should always end your program on a dog. I don't think that Rich probably did. Because he needs a dog. But um, anyway, thank you.